sweet land of liberty, our founding fathers not only pledged, but gave their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor to obtain our God-given liberty. Now it's our turn. Liberty can only thrive if it's alive in the hearts of a freedom-loving people. I'm Dan Matthews, and I'm pleased to welcome you to Freedom's Ring. Here's our host and constitutional lawyer and minister, Alan Reinock. Welcome back to Freedom's Ring, my friends. The Supreme Court was very busy this term on religion cases, one of which was particularly revolutionary, a case called Espinoza against Montana. Here to discuss it is my friend and colleague, Richard Katsky, legal director for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. Richard, welcome to Freedom's Ring. Thanks, Alan. It's great to have a chance to talk with you and all your listeners today. So, for starters, you know, introduce our listeners to the facts of the case, what this case was all about. Sure. Uh, Espinosa against Montana Department of Revenue is a case that had to do with a school voucher program that the state of Montana created. What happened was this. The state legislature set up a... Um, set up a, a program where it said that money would go to um, private schools subject to any limitations from the state constitution. Um, the state constitution has a no-aid clause that says no money to uh, no money to religious schools or religious schooling. Um, so the State Department of Revenue, when it was putting in place this um, this program, said, okay, then we'll give school vouchers to folks to go to um, private non-religious schools, but not to private religious schools. Um, some parents who send their kids to uh, religious schools in Montana uh, challenged the law, and, uh, and it went through the courts up to the Montana Supreme Court to begin with. The Montana Supreme Court said that, um, that there was a problem with the state giving money to religious schools, which was okay, you know, because the state wasn't doing that, but also said that the state couldn't, it wasn't clear whether the state legislature would have created the voucher program had it been paying attention to the restrictions. So the state Supreme Court struck down the whole voucher program, said, we're just not going to have one um, unless the legislature goes back and does something else. The parents sought review from the U.S. Supreme Court to quite to my surprise and to most people's surprise, granted review. The reason why it was a surprise is the theme of the petition for review from the Supreme Court was this is religious discrimination. Secular private schools and people who go there can get money, but not it's a religious school or if you go to a religious school. But because of what the state Supreme Court had done, that just wasn't the case. There was no money going to any private school. Right. So there was no discrimination after all. Yes, but that's not what the Supreme Court ended up saying, which was part of the surprise. Uh, you mentioned that this was really unprecedented, and it's true. Um, the Supreme Court said excluding religious schools from the program was categorically religious discrimination because it was treating the religious schools and people who go there differently from, uh, from non-religious schools without stepping back and saying, things like, let's see how the money is used. Um, this money is going to provide religious instruction, and uh, and that's categorically one of the things that the First Amendment protects against the government doing. Government isn't supposed to do that so that we can make our own choices 
about how our money is spent and whether it's spent on religion and religious instruction. But the court said if a state creates a voucher program where money goes to secular private schools, it must turn around and also give money to religious schools. And as I say, didn't really care that the money then would be put to religious use. Right. Well, one of the things to me, Richard, that seems so revolutionary, for decades now, the court has arguably inconsistently looked at when is it okay for government resources to be used for religious schools. Bus transportation is okay. You know, certain other kinds of aid is okay. But traditionally, it's been analyzed by the under the establishment clause. There's a separation between church and state. We don't establish religion. So what kind of aid is okay? What kind is not okay? Here, if I am reading it correctly, the court really did not engage in this traditional kind of analysis, but they flipped it over and, and to the free exercise clause and said, well, if you're giving money for private education, but you're not giving it to religious education, you're violating a free exercise right that they have to be treated equally. Yeah, no, that's exactly what the court did. And the way that you describe what the jurisprudence has been is certainly spot on as well. The court has always before looked and said, um, let's see what the money is doing. And it's decided it under principally under the establishment clause, because, of course, government funding of religion, religious instruction is what it means to establish religion. And it is the thing that uh, one of the prime evils that the First Amendment was designed to protect against, because the idea, of course, and I know you talk about this all the time on, on this show, um, the idea is that government isn't supposed to interfere with religion, whether that's, you know, in the moment, whether that seems like a good thing or a bad thing. Government isn't supposed to muck around with that because we're supposed to be able to do that and make those choices for ourselves. Right. And throughout the window. So the notion that there's a free exercise right to funding from the state is really quite extraordinary. And so the other observation I had is that um, I was looking over a whole series of Supreme Court decisions, and in addition to looking at the Establishment Clause, they would argue about the history of Virginia and what happened with Jefferson's bill for establishing for religious freedom in Virginia with Madison's defeat of a funding bill for religion just before the Constitution was adapted, and whether the religious, the aid to religion was approved or disapproved in any given case, they were always going back to the same history. But in this case, they went to a different history. Why don't you tell us about that? Well, sure. And that's right, by the way, you know, your audience knows a lot of that history. And for some reason, it's almost like the justices don't, or they didn't pay attention to it, because they were certainly told about it. The history that the that the court pointed to was a very limited, one-sided view about where these state no-aid clauses come from. And what the court did was basically took this as from what was the federal Blaine Amendment in 1870, 1875, 1876, something like that, where there was a, a failed attempt to have a federal constitutional amendment passed that would have barred money to religious schools. 
And there's some anti-Catholic history to the Blaine Amendment. It isn't all that. Um, its history is complex, and the history of legislation and constitutional amendments are complex. But there's some bad baggage to that. But the state constitutional no-aid provisions, um, a lot of them predate that entire enterprise. And for that matter, the um, the waves of emigration of, of Catholics in the later part of the 19th century, uh, some of these state no-aid clauses go back to the first one, I think it's about 1820. And some of them are modern. And in this case, Montanus, by the way, Montanus was put in place in the early 20th century based on Washington states, neither of which was there any suggestion of any anti-religious or anti-Catholic reason for it. But they also reenacted it in the in, uh, the, in the 1970s. Right. And there they had folks like the um, the head of Catholic education for the arch- for the for the diocese there come and testify to the state legislature and say, we think that this protection is a good thing, saying no aid to religion, because when government gives money, uh, strings come with it, and the government shouldn't be interfering with the way we run our schools, so don't right. run. So I have a kind of a silly little mantra that I recite, which is, what do we call schools that are funded by public tax dollars? We call them public schools. So if we give money to religious schools, you know, the inevitable influence is going to be to make them much more like public schools. And those of us who believe in, for example, Christian education, we certainly want to maintain our autonomy and our independence. Yeah, look, I think I think that's right. I think that that's the, the way we've always traditionally in this country thought about things. Um, as there was the development of public schools that dated back to whether you call it 1805 or 1820 is a little bit complicated. But since then, we've had the growth of the public schools. And it's always been the idea that these are open to and inclusive of everyone. And if you want to have religious education, if you want to have religious schooling, uh, you can absolutely do that. Um, but you do that yourself and the government stays out of that, stays out of that by paying for it, stays out of that by directing it. Um, and this really, by blurring that line, I think creates real risks about what control has to follow from government funding. Because the whole point, you know, you use public money, then the government is responsible to all of us for the use of our tax dollars. And I'm not sure that we want um, the government to be responsible for all of us for what goes on in religious schools across the country. Um, they should be deciding that for themselves. Right. Well, you know... In doing a little research, Richard, I encountered an article by a very prominent law professor who was on the winning side of this case and argued that uh, for overturning the Montana decision, but about 20 years ago, wrote a very effective piece analyzing colonial history and debunking the idea that government aid non-preferentially to religion, in other words, treating all religion, you know, equally, that that was consistent with the founding fathers and and our colonial scheme and our constitution. So he debunked that idea. Now here we are, a mere twenty years later, and this notion of non-preferential aid or a free exercise right to aid is now ensconced in the law. It's been a complete hundred and eighty degree turn, hasn't it? 
Uh, it sure has, and it's hard to understand that, because I think that article from, and I know which one you're talking about, I think that article from 20 years ago is absolutely right. Um, you mentioned the history uh, out of Virginia with Jefferson and Madison and the Virginia Bill Establishing Religious Liberty. Um, that, of course, and I know this is something you've talked about any number of times here also, but that came about in part because Patrick Henry in Virginia uh floated a bill in the Virginia legislature that would have funded teachers of uh, teachers of Christian education, basically pay clergy. Um, and it was set up to say, I think it was the Anglican church at the time was the, was the state church, but said, if you don't want that, then the money can go someplace else. And we're sort of willing to give it to whomever, but it was all about funding of Christian education. And the bill, uh, the Virginia bill that was then the root of the First Amendment's protections for religious freedom was when, uh, was Madison's effort to stop the funding of teachers of Christianity and Christian clergy because he thought that that was going to corrupt religion. And that's what we came out of. And that was non-preferential in the sense that you right. would say, I wanted to go to this church rather than that church. They didn't care. The surprise, I think, for many Americans today is that the leading forces supporting Madison were Baptists and others who were the product of the First Great Awakening, who, you know, were more like evangelicals in their doctrinal beliefs, certainly, and in religious experience. But the Baptists were dead set on the principle of voluntarism in religion, that you not be taxed even to support your own faith. You know, one of my heroes is Roger Williams, who, of course, was the founder of Rhode Island, but was also the great Baptist theologian who was the one who we always credit Jefferson for creating the metaphor of the wall of separation. Actually, Roger Williams did it because he said that there should be, he said, a wall or a hedge surrounding the church to protect it from the wilds of the world, which means, among other things, civil government. Well. That's a wonderful image for us to close on. Our guest today, Richard Katsky, Legal Director for Americans United for Separation of Church and State. We've been discussing the Supreme Court decision in Espinosa against Montana. This has been Freedom's Ring. I'm your host, Alan Reinach. Until next week, let freedom ring. <laughs>